and welcome to Talking and Show, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. And Zahava Stadler in northern New Jersey. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi, Zahava. Uh, we're recording this on a very, well, snowy for some of us, but not for all of us day. Um, and uh, I'm excited to see you all since I've been stuck inside for what seems like 11 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> this month on the podcast, we each read a different book about someone leaving orthodoxy, and we're going to discuss the themes and our reactions that came up. And in our second segment, we're going to discuss the recent blow up about women's march leaders Tamika Mallory and Carmen Perez and their support of Louis Farrakhan, who is a viral and anti-Semite and misogynist. So good times all around. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for our first segment, we each read different books. So I thought maybe we could just go around, say what book we read and give like a two or three sentence, like big picture, rea- big picture reaction to those books. Does that sound good? Sure. Sounds great. Okay, so Zahava, why don't you start? So I read a book that actually has been endorsed on this podcast before by Yael Kalman when she was a guest on the podcast, um, Shalom Dean's All Who Go Do Not Return. Uh, The book is about the departure not not just from orthodoxy, but from the incredibly insular Skvera Hasidish community in New Square, New York. Um, So Shalom Dean... uh, over time comes to question his membership in the community, his faith overall, um, and has to leave entirely when, as a result, he is essentially expelled from the town. Um, So on a book level, this is a really good book. Like, it's well-written, it's really interesting, it's really engaging and vivid. Um, As to the the contents and the themes, I think there's a lot more to discuss. Great. So I, this is Mimi, I ended up reading two books, um, one because I had already purchased on Audible Foreskin's Lament by Shalom Auslander, who grew up in a yeshivish community um, in New Jersey. Um, And this book, I would recommend it. Um, It's, he is incredibly funny. Um, I would really recommend listening to it on Audible if that's something you do, um, because a lot of his stories actually have been featured on um, This American Life. He reads it. He has a great voice. The humor really, the you know, comedic timing is perfect. Um, so great book. He there's a lot more to say about his journey leaving um, the Orthodox community and New York. The other book I read is called Cut Me Loose. It's by um, a woman who grew up in a yeshivish community in Pittsburgh. Um, It is very dark. I had a really hard time reading this book. Um, Her experience is so was, she's now in a really good place, but her experience was really dark and depressing. Um, And this book is not for people who are squeamish. It features rape, um, cutting, self-mutilation, suicide attempts. It it was bleak and also incredibly written. Um, I felt like it was an important book for me to get after the lighthearted funniness of Forskin's Lament to get her 
woman's experience and like the gravity of it. Yeah, it, it's powerful. Um, I read uh, The Book of Separation by Toba Mervis. And actually, I think I hadn't really thought about this before, but what was really interesting about this book is that it was about somebody leaving modern orthodoxy and not somebody leaving an insular Hasidic world. And so in a way, it hit me much harder because I was like, I know these people. And, um, and it, you know, she was making less of a, what you would imagine to be less of a huge transition than somebody who like doesn't speak fluent English. Um, but it was still like a really intense story of kind of heartrending decisions about leaving a marriage and a community and kind of going into this unknown. Uh, and I really liked it. I sped right through it. It's interesting. I, I feel in the, um, in the introduction to Cut Me Loose, Leah Vincent talks about um, like three branches of Orthodox Judaism. So she talks about um, Hasidim, yeshivish communities, and modern Orthodox communities. And it seems like we each read books from those different places. Um, hmm. Yeah. This is <laughs> this is just my the fact that Mimi just pronounced Hasidim as as though it's like the Israeli word for pious um, <laughs> as opposed to like the way Hasidish people would refer to themselves. You're right. just really makes me smile. Um, this is, this is the problem of being somebody who like reads these words more than hears them spoken, you know? Yeah. 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 I always have the instinct to like Israeliify anything Hebrew that I say. But sometimes it is a really weird choice, right. like with Hasidic. There's actually a transliteration note at the beginning of All Who Go Do Not Return that extremely common, readily understandable Hebrew terms will be rendered in their common spelling and not in a way that directly transliterated the way they would be pronounced in his New Square community. The specific example in that note is that the word Torah is spelled T-O-R-A-H and not uh, a transliteration of how it would be pronounced in Yiddish, which would be like Torah, mm -hmm. um, right. which wow. might be alienating to some readers. Like, what's what's Torah? Um, <sighs> then again, when it's something that is much more specific to the community, if it's a Yiddish phrase, or if it's a trans, or if it's a transliteration of of a, even a Hebrew phrase from a traditional text that might be more commonly cited in his community than in others, then it's more rendered in the. Uh, with the Yiddish accent. So I thought that was an interesting choice and interesting also that they chose to flag it. I'm not sure it would even have registered with me that I was reading the word Torah and not Torah if it hadn't been flagged in the, uh, in the note in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So what, uh, well, Zahava, you kind of uh, hedged a little bit on telling us what you thought. So, so I'm interested to hear more about what, what it was like to read this, your book. Well, I, I really did like this book and would recommend it to to most readers. Um, I think that there's some interesting things to pull apart. So actually, um, my sister, who's read a number of these memoirs, commented to me that she thought that this one, All Who Go Do Not Return, was the best one that she had read, in part because it seemed like he had been 
out the longest and had had perhaps the most time to process his transition and think through what strand went back to which point in his life. And I agree that the book is very well organized. Um, you know, so it is in, it's not purely chronological. There are jump backs to different points in his life that illuminate things and that's well organized and well done. And I think it actually is helpful. Um, I think that, you know, on the subject of us reading things from different, um, different portions of the Orthodox world, as a modern Orthodox person, I kept reading this and thinking, this man left the most restrictive, most insular possible version of Judaism. I mean, New Square, he's not just Hasidish. He's from a kind of Hasidism that is essentially a town with a wall around it, more or less. Um, so much so that his membership in the community ends with him being physically expelled from the town. And that is how he ultimately makes his final break with the community. And I kept thinking, what if he had been raised modern Orthodox? Would he still be modern Orthodox? And I don't know to what extent that's a real possibility and to what extent it's me not wanting to feel as challenged by this book as I might otherwise be. Um, Because there are two sort of strands here. There's one is about belief and his discovery that Uh, He doesn't believe the things that he's always been taught and no longer uh, believes in God or that this is what God wants from him. But the other is about choice, right? It's about he's been shuffled into this particular track in life. He met his wife for seven minutes before marrying her. He didn't even want to get married at all, Um, you know, and then he didn't feel that he had the tools to succeed in this predetermined role as a provider. The community hadn't educated him on how to provide for all of these children. He wasn't you know, he had no knowledge of birth control, all of these things. There's a lot about choice. Um, and at the end of the edition that I read, there's a, an interview with with, um, with Shalom Dean by a reporter who asked, do you want your children to leave the community? And he said, what I want is for them to leave if it's better for them and stay if it's better for them, but to have a choice and, and to have greater choice than than what was provided for me. And I don't want to downplay the importance of his faith journey, but I also want to say that there's this other element of choice and specific and the specificity of the path that's laid out for him that makes me wonder what if he were in an Orthodox Judaism that had more choice, that had more flexibility, that was more open to the books that he wanted to read and the ideas that he wanted to explore. Maybe he'd still be part of the observant community. And then I wonder, does that, cheapen the testimony that he's given about his faith so it's something that i was i was wrestling back and forth while i was reading this book and do you get a sense either through the book or through follow-up interviews what his connection to judaism is now my sense is uh that well at least where the book leaves him off he lives in bushwick in brooklyn um and is not uh, technically observant in any way, but is very involved in footsteps. And as someone who was already employed, already an English speaker, um, he wasn't in need necessarily of footsteps supportive services, um, practical supportive services, but that he was very in need of the kind of uh, post Hasidish community that was available to him and that he could do things like go to a potluck Friday night dinner where there's a kosher table and a non-kosher table and all sing the same Shabbat songs, the same Zmirot that he knew from his youth and that that was an important 
form of homecoming in a certain way. Um, so I get the sense that there are ways, there are small ways in which he wants to hold on to his um, positive cultural associations. But that, that seemed to be all. Yeah. Also, uh, another question. This is harkening back to a previous episode of Talking in Shul, but is Square Hasidism the same that Menasha, the movie Menasha was about? Or, or the actor, wasn't he from New Square? I don't recall um, oh. whether he was from New Square. I mean, the, the movie was set in Brooklyn. Um, right, so that's... And there I, is a square community. So uh, it seems from this book, and I don't have outside knowledge, that there's a, a square yeshiva, like, uh, you know, K-12-ish yeshiva in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. So that that's not mm. unheard of. But that Shulam Dean actually... Um, opts into the specific square community in New Square, which is sort of like the the home base of New Square, where the square Rebbe um, lives. And, and, that's, and that actually sort of is its own village outside Muncie with, you know, I mean, I've been in New Square right. once. Um, there's like posted signs of the sides of the street for men and women. Um, it's, you know, the the physical environment is very highly controlled in a way that it wouldn't be if you were a square chassid living in Brooklyn. Right. Got it. I have a question about Shulam Dean. Was there like a particular, I know that he talks a lot about faith and kind of not having faith in his, um, in his book, but was there like a, a big event or a particular relationship that was kind of the impetus for his leaving? Or was it really in his telling about um, about faith? So this is actually really fascinating. There is a particular relationship um, that is important to informing the way he thinks about his faith. So certainly there are parts of the story that harken back to being younger, uh, questioning and not having sort of avenues for exploring those questions, but also the early stages of feeling constrained by the lack of choice and the stringency in his world. But as um, in his 20s, he re-encounters somebody that he went to uh, high school with. And that person has since quasi left the community, remained Hasidish, and is working in Kirov in Israel, um, Kirov meaning outreach to unaffiliated or less affiliated Jews to try and make them uh, connect with uh, with more observant Judaism. So the book isn't specific, but it sounds like he might be teaching at Eshat Torah. Um, and this person comes back. Shulam Dean runs into him at morning services one day. They rekindle, and he is part of the Ish school of rationalist Kirov, um, where with attempts to sort of prove through science and logic that Judaism is the truth and the right faith. And rationalism is something that Skvera Hasidus very much is um, suspicious of. Um, you know, faith is, is a deep connection that you have with God. It's not for you to try and question and logic out. Um, and they have these back and forths. And over 
time with Shulam Dean representing the Scavera position of your rationalism is the wrong route to faith, he winds up convincing himself that the rationalist Judaism is wrong, but also convincing himself that the blind faith or the simple faith that he was raised with is is just as implausible or just as ill-founded. And through it is through his relationship with this Kiruv professional that he essentially talks himself out of believing in God, which is fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that key professional really failed. <laughs> that was Major a bad backfire. Day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I learned in, um, in Leah Vincent's book, she talks about um, people who have like left their home Orthodox community, um, maybe like, engaged in certain behaviors that wouldn't be okay in their communities, and then as an attempt to come back, become engaged in Kiruv. That there's something particular about somebody can be particularly good at Kiruv if he, usually he, has experienced other, uh, either leaving Judaism or leaving their particular kind of Judaism. Um, and, and she talks about just how vulnerable those people are the people who choose Kiruv, because they're, act, they're really stuck in, in a few ways. That's really interesting. Yeah. Mimi, it's, I, if my memory is that Shalom Oslander's father was really abusive. Is that right? Right, yes. So when talking about, like, is there a relationship that informs Auslander's move away from Judaism, it is really his relationship with his father and the way that he maps his relationship with God onto his relationship with his father. So Auslander really, he, he, I think because all of these things were happening at formative years in his life, he talks a lot about what happens like from ages five to eight, for example, he gets fixated on this notion that if I do the right things, I won't be punished or if, and if I do the wrong things, I will be punished either by something bad happening to me or to my family. But these wires get crossed because his father is an abusive alcoholic. So he's always trying to find out the way to make his dad laugh, to make his dad not beat himself and his brother, but also the way to, to avoid God's punishment. Um, and he, both Leah Vincent and Auslander talk in this way that really sort of drove me crazy about, like, um, command, about transgressions and commandments as this math game, as if they could observe Shabbat one weekend and eat a cheeseburger the next weekend, and it would all balance out in the end. Or they could kiss a boy once as long as they didn't ride in the car. Or, the, you know, like this math problem, um, which had me thinking maybe Zahava along the same lines as you did of like, I wonder what their connection with Judaism and God would be if, like me, they never had any any. That, that notion was never introduced to me in my Judaism, that like a, there was a direct line from one commandment to one good thing coming and one transgression to one bad thing coming. Hmm. It's so childish, though. 
Right. I mean, it's such a simplistic understanding of Judaism. I, and maybe, like you said, the Auslander book really focuses on childhood. I don't know it, whether Leah Vincent's book dwells on that period as well. I, I guess, no, Leah Vincent's book, she does sort of move past that understanding of God. She talks a lot about like a hunger, um, a hunger for connection, her hunger for actual love from her parents, um, which she didn't really get. And then she seeks it elsewhere in relationships with men. And for her, the one thing that not one thing, there were many things, but a turning point for her was she went off to um, high school in, I want to say in the UK, and she started a, a male correspondence. She started leaving notes, rather, for this boy who was a little bit more modern Orthodox than she was. Um, and somehow her community found out about the letters she was writing this boy. No touching, no, the letters were like, literally the letters were about God, halakha, should the Jewish state exist? And this was seen as so inappropriate that she would write this boy that she couldn't go to the seminary that she was lined up to go to. And she, no matchmakers would take her. Uh, it, you know, it was just, it was such a break. And it's so, after that, she, I mean, she was like left so alone. She was 17. They sent her to Israel to a seminary for um, women who were converting or were um, becoming more Orthodox. And she was a 17-year-old girl in a, in a seminary of 30-year-olds. It, it, was, it was just chilling what she went through. That sounds terrible. Uh, so the book that I read was really interesting because it wasn't like that. Like it was somebody who I felt like I know a million people who were raised, not a million, but I know several hundred people who were raised very similarly to this woman. She grew up um, in Memphis and she went to the Yeshiva of the South, which was like eight eight girls or something and there were three boys in a separate adjacent school and um then she went to seminary for a year it sounds like she went to midrash at lindemam um and then i think she went and then she went to columbia and then she got married and um you know like i know so many people for whom that is like almost exactly what they did if i mean i I don't think I know anyone from the Frum community in Memphis, but like I know people from the Frum community in Nashville, and I know people people from the Frum community in like various places in Florida and whatever. And obviously, like she could have gone to my high school and gotten the same education. Um, and her book was really, uh, and she also was much older, I think, than um, the other people. She was in her forties when she left. Or, I think she was like 39, 40 when she was leaving um, Orthodoxy. And so it's different when you, I mean, she, she had kids and I think everybody, most of these people had kids, but she, she was older and more established. And she actually like had a reputation as a writer about 
modern orthodoxy. Um, right. I have so, read The Lady's Auxiliary, which is her novel about the modern orthodox community in Memphis. Right. And she writes in the book about how it's funny because I read that book, too. And I thought, like, what a treacly description of <laughs> modern orthodox life. When I read it, I was like, "Whew, these are some goody two shoes people. And she wrote it and got all of this feedback from people who were like, oh, my gosh, this is such a scandal. And I was like, really? Um, but, you know, she was part of a community and that community didn't really appreciate being written about in the way that she wrote about them. Um, but she wasn't like really disconnected from the rest of the world. She was like very firmly planted in the um, in the secular world in a way. And what she writes about is really how, like, when, even though she, like, had a lot of familiarity with the secular world and was, like, in a way a part of it, the whole structure of her life as a modern Orthodox person came from Judaism. And when she realized that she didn't believe and that she was feeling just, like, constant chafing under a system of rules that she didn't really believe and she decided she had to get out, it left her with this enormous vacuum in her life of like, how do I structure my days? How do I think about who I am and what I want to be? How can I be, even if I don't really believe this stuff, if my kids are with me half the time, how do I deal with that? You know, she wasn't, to, to the extent that she wrote it about in the book she wasn't dealing with like a situation where she had to like say goodbye to her kids she spent half of her time with her kids or her kids spent half of their time with her but she's not orthodox anymore and her ex-husband is so like how does that play out um and I thought that was really interesting and it it made me think how even though she wasn't kind of like destitute she didn't have like no skills she could support herself and she had friends in a community that she could lean on she still really felt very vulnerable and it was just like incredibly hard on her um and I just thought that was like really interesting because I could imagine that like if I suddenly was like, well, I'm not doing Jewish stuff anymore because I don't believe it, then I also would, even though I'm not modern Orthodox, like my life would be really hard for me to figure out what to do with it. Like Mm -hmm. my whole life is really totally like structured around Judaism in a very deep way. And if you, if I, if I was suddenly like, well, I don't believe in this structure and I want to move away from it. Like, I don't know what I would be. Um, I was, my dog died about a month ago and we're going to get another dog, um, I think after Pesach, but like, I keep thinking about how one of the things that I didn't realize I was going to miss so much is the structure that having a dog gives to your day. Like every day I would get up and get dressed and walk the dog right away. We walked our dog four times a day. So there was, there we were kind of always dividing the day into like the, the time, the zones of dog walks. And we were, if we weren't going to be around, we had to like plan ahead so that somebody else could walk the dog. And like, it was such a deep part of like just every single day of my life for the past six years. 
Um, and it's been super weird to not have that. And like, that's obviously not the same as a religion, but like it, I have been really affected by the loss of that not huge structure. And like, if you took away, if I decided that I wasn't going to do, to use the structure of Judaism anymore, like I would feel completely unmoored as a person. Um, and that was like, just really interesting for me to kind of meditate on as I was reading the book. But Zahava, I really think, especially because of your reaction to the book that you read, you should definitely read this book because I think it would be, it, it's essentially what you were, what you were wondering about as you were reading, like, how would I feel about this if it was written by somebody who is modern Orthodox? Yeah. I mean, the, so two things, first of all, um, the, what you're saying about the structure that Judaism provides makes me think of one of the reactions I had to the language in all who go do not return, which is that, um, like observance is expressed more of as a geography than as a belief system or a lifestyle. There's a lot of talk of, there's obviously going and returning in the title, but like no longer being religious is expressed as leaving. Like, oh, after I left, this is what happened. Um, and in his case, there really is a, a town involved, but he's originally from Borough Park. He wasn't raised in New Square. And so, or his early life was not in New Square. And so he, he doesn't have the sense that Judaism only exists in New Square. And yet he left and it's a sort of a physical departure. And I think that it's very much what you're talking about, that there's this, uh, there's this architecture that religion provides um, to, your, to your day and your life and your year and, and that that's a huge deal. Um, but actually, so Tamar, the way you're describing this, is Tova Mervis's book mostly about the time after she left her community in that way? Or is it mostly about the run-up and the decision? I guess it's mostly about the run-up and the decision, but it's pretty, I mean, I don't know. It kind of, it, there's a lot of flashbacks, so there's a lot of, like, talking about stuff that happened when she was younger, and what she says, which I already knew because I'd listened to this um, interview with her that I uh, endorsed a couple months ago, is that, like, she had really struggled with the belief around Judaism for a long time, and she kind of talks about some specific moments and some um, kind of periods where that came up in her life and then I would say like the big focus is on essentially the year from when she um, and her husband separate until they are divorced um, and just like legally divorced it actually begins with her getting a get um, and it's just kind of about that whole separation from a community and a partner and a way of life yeah I mean in Shulam Dean's book the um, the dissolution of his marriage, this marriage that was sort of foisted on him by the structure of his community, but within which he grew to see a lot of value and connection. Um, so the end of that relationship features very prominently in the end of his relationship with his religion and community. Mimi, the books that you read, were the, were the authors married within their yeshivish Orthodox communities? Is that a feature? Uh, no, both end up marrying other people who are OTD off the derech um, after they have left their communities. You know, in Leah Silver's case, she, I, I really, I, I felt that she was much more pushed out than she left. She made certain choices, but she really wanted to stay in the community. She 
there were years where because she was not married, um, she didn't really know where to place herself. She wasn't a member of a shul. Nobody invited her over for meals. And yet she kept Shabbat. She kept kosher. She kept all of the holidays. And she was just oh. so alone and shunned because she was she was 22 and not married. Um, and, and also, this is another thing, she was incredibly poor because her family no longer was supporting her and she wasn't married for another man to support her. Um, so for her, like, she maintained the, a lot of the structures of Judaism, but the structure of the community had abandoned her. Um, and uh, for Auslander, he had left the community, but I think Auslander thinks of himself as like a very special snowflake. Um, and he like needed to find somebody who understood what a special snowflake he was. And he ended up finding a, um, a woman who had grown up Orthodox um, and had left so that he, and, and you know, he, I think he acknowledges that he just like throws a lot of his baggage at her and they have to grapple with it in their marriage. Um, so both, both get married after the fact and, and fortunately one through footsteps and one on, on his own found people who could relate to their stories. Um, I want to ask though about, about the financial structure also of Judaism, like it sounds like Tova Mervis had a job and she was set up in the world. And when she left Orthodox Judaism, her, her modern Orthodox community, she was fine. Uh, I yeah. mean, she doesn't really talk about the money. Her husband was a lawyer and she's a writer, but she is only, I think this book is her fourth, third or her fourth book. So okay. she, you know, her books have been successful, but knowing what I know about how, how one makes money as a writer, like... I'm sure she couldn't just live on that. Um, I assume that she had some other source of income. So either she was like doing some other teaching or something that she didn't talk about, or she was getting some money from her ex or both. Right. I, I guess I just found like, especially once the family members cut Auslander and um, Vincent off at young ages, they were left to fend for themselves with both of them, not, amazing educations or job prospects. The financial issues actually loom very large in Shulam Dean's book um, because in New Square, it's the kind of environment where men especially are supposed to be learning Torah all the time during their even their grade school education, especially during their grade school education, because you don't yet have a family to support, you should be learning Torah all the time. And so they are explicitly not taught to read and write English. Um, why, you know, what could you get from reading and writing English that would be more valuable from learning Torah? Um, there's a time when he's reading an English language book about Rabbi Akiva, who's, you know, a, a major personage in the Talmud, and his Rebbe asks him what it is, and with this totally disgusted look, says, you couldn't find a book about Rabbi Akiva in Yiddish? And there's this, so he's, he's actually not uh, the least able in his community because he's not originally from New Square. And, and as a sort of middle schooler, eighth grader, he winds up joining the community. And, and previously he was a chassid 
from a Hasidic family, but living in Borough Park, and therefore he can read and write English, um, which is actually a major advantage for him in the long run over his peers. But there is an interesting... I guess there are two interesting insights about this in the book. One is that he and his wife, Gitty, are very much funneled without any particular fanfare discussion or choice into this marriage and into parenthood. And then his wife immediately takes to parenthood. She knows what to do with babies. She knows how to cook food. She knows how to keep a house. It's like it's as though she was being prepared for that her whole life, which in all likelihood she, she was. was. Yeah. Um, but he, the role that he is supposed to occupy in this marriage is provider. And he hasn't been prepared to do that at all. And, um, and when they have their first child, they can get by on his colel stipend, but they don't know anything about birth control over the course of, over the course of his twenties before he leaves the community, they have five children and there are, many mouths to feed and he has very little route to professional life and it is only sort of through through his transgressions of dabbling in uh you know english language books and then in getting access to the internet and and reading and things like that that he gets interested in programming and winds up doing a programming course and and is eventually able to become a computer programmer but only via breaking the rules um Right. And he would not have, and, and there is a, a discussion of how all of his yeshiva peers are all struggling and coming up with some scheme or other and, and trying this and that. And there's a moment where um, an unnamed telecom company run by a modern Orthodox Jew who is nominally willing to hire Hasidim tries to like open the door to recruitment in New Square and they're asked to fill out resumes, which none of them have ever heard of. And they're supposed to put down a list of their skills and none of them can really come up with any relevant ones. And then none of them are hired because they're underqualified. And it is very clear that the functional life of the community is not provided for that there's this sense that you know they're living off various streams of government assistance colel stipends and uh benefactors from outside the community uh and not quite getting by yeah yeah a few months ago i was having dinner with some friends of ours and they are uh, a woman who grew up muslim and a man who grew up mennonite and now um He's an atheist Buddhist, and she's agnostic, I would say. And we were talking about it because, you know, they come over to our house for, like, Shabbat meals a lot, and we were talking about our our experiences with religion because all of us grew up kind of steeped in religion, um, but they really don't experience that. as a, They didn't experience it as a positive thing. Um, and I, I basically feel like the reason that, like, they left their religions and I stayed in mine, even though it's not like my practice is exactly the same as my parents, but it's just like I had a positive experience growing up. Like even the stuff where I'm like, I'm not sure I believe this is less important to me because like I get the community and I, I like, it feels good to me. And for them, that wasn't how they experienced it. Like their experience of religion felt I think in both cases, like, really restrictive. And also they both saw people who were, like, very um, hypocritical in their practice of, like, people who were very religious and were not being 
were seen as like pious people, but were like bad people. Mm -hmm. And both of them basically kind of walked away from religion as a result of being like, well, what does it even mean to be a religious person? Um, And, you know, it's not like I never saw that, but like my, my experience growing up was, was just not really about pious people. Um, It was just about like a sense of warmth and community. And so like I experienced it as, warm and welcoming and I like wanted that for myself and for my family and that was just like not where they came from and when I was um reading this book and thinking about this I was basically wondering like how much of it really comes down to essentially like did you experience your religion as something that like was positive and and didn't just like kind of point out hypocrisy to you or did you experience it as something that was just saying no to you or was like dangerous or scary? Do you think that's like a fair paradigm? I, I guess I would want to add one more element, which is are people willing to hear your questions and, or is there anybody in your community who you've seen asking similar questions, but remains in the community? Yeah. Um, that was a piece for both of these people. Like they had nobody to talk to about their questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that does feature in Shalom Dean's book. I think, you know, while there is some discussion of like the reverence that the community has for the Rebbe, the Skvera Rebbe and, and discussing whether or not he is the great man, everybody thinks, and he does as much for everyone as they say. It feels honestly like the thing is that the community expects your Judaism to be motivated by consequences rather than by any sort of affirmative reason to be there. So whether that's the consequences of God's punishment or the consequences of being expelled from the community or your children being expelled from school or not getting a shidduch or um, whatever it is that there's quite a lot of that kind of negative motivation and very little affirmative engagement with a Judaism that you want. And I think actually one reason this book, despite its, despite its real personal difficulty, didn't put me off is that it, it does feel like an actual grappling with Judaism And with the version of Judaism he was taught, which is not quite the same thing as my Judaism, but with Judaism. And, you know, especially Mimi hearing you describe the abuse and mistreatment and and mental health experiences of the people who wrote the books that you read. This is going to sound sort of like a poorly constructed sentence, but was that really Judaism's fault? Right, right. Yeah, I I felt that about Auslander in particular. Like, although there is an element of the Jewish community that he was in, everybody there knew what his dad was doing to him, his mother, and his brother. And and I, it's not Judaism's fault, but it is that, I would say, the community bears some responsibility for Absolutely. not providing something else for these kids. So, yeah. But yeah. All right. Well, this has been a, a longer than normal discussion, but it was good. Yes. I'm, I'm really interested to hear all these books and now I want to read all of them. Um, so, yeah, we hope that you will. If there, and We know that there's kind of a trend of these going on. So if there's some others that you recommend, please um, 
let us know on Facebook or on our page which ones we should look at next. All right, should we go on to our second segment? Something nice and fluffy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh oh my goodness, I did so much pre-reading for this segment. I'm, I'm feeling so trepidatious about it. Your prep is amazing, though. So helpful. <laughs> I am, like, weirdly... Well, well, we'll get into it in a minute. So let me just introduce this segment. In February, Tamika Mallory, who's one of the four organizers of the Women's March, tweeted about her day spent at a Nation of Islam event called Savior's Day, including complimenting Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, um, Jake Tapper of CNN, surface the tweets, and commence firestorm of um, people who are, like, really shocked and horrified and upset um, that this person would really go speak so positively of someone who is so openly anti-Semitic. And she was then defended by other members of the Women's March leadership. And then the Women's March put out a statement that was kind of a non-apology apology and it seems to be a thing that people are really engaged with. So I thought that we would talk about it a little, a little bit. So Zahava, since you did the most prep, um, I am really interested. Like, wh- what, what about this made you anxious? Well, before I answer that question, I do want to add one thing to the scene setting, which is that at the event that she specifically attended, there was direct anti-Semitism and... Yeah homophobia in the remarks of Louis Farrakhan, specifically, uh, you know, I mean, Jews are Satan, Jews are feminizing black men by slipping marijuana into the water, Jews are the cause of Hollywood making men into women and women into men. I mean, it was all kinds of stuff at the event that she attended, and not only attended, but Louis Farrakhan called her out by name, recognized her in the crowd. Um, and that so this is not some kind of vague, this is someone who did something bad once and you breathe the same air, so you must disavow him. There's something much more concrete going on. Yeah. Um, so I think this is, the reason this was, this was uh, anxiety inducing for me um, is that, so we are lacking a person of color in this conversation. Um, and I think that when it comes down to um, you must disavow this person or these remarks or this organization, however you're going to frame that demand, um, that there is always a discussion of whether we're talking about a deal breaker or whether we're talking about balancing the good with the bad. And I think you could frame this as a deal breaker thing. I think Louis Farrakhan has said a sufficient number over many decades of horrifyingly bigoted things that you could just say that aspect of his persona is a sufficient deal breaker that the conversation may end there. But because even if he didn't say, even if he didn't say anti-Semitic things, he also like has been pretty open about the fact that he, he essentially incited people to murder Malcolm X. So he's also been complicit in a murder. So I think like, Even if the anti-Semitism doesn't really bother you, the murder should. I think all the things should really bother you. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. But I think that because the response from 
uh, from either Tamika Mallory herself or from defenders of a non-disavowal has really centered on, you have to understand what Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam do for certain black communities. My trepidation has been that do I know how to properly weight the good against the bad? I think it's pretty clear that in their responses, some of the key players, Tamika Mallory, other members of the Women's March leadership, have underweighted the bad here. But I worry about not being in an informed, an informed enough position to properly weight the good. Um, and, and there's some of that discussion. I, here's why I felt okay enough to go forward with the conversation anyway. Because I think there are three levels of disavowal one might demand. You could, at a maximalist level, a maximalist level, demand complete dissociation from the Nation of Islam and all of its forms, activism, forums, whatever. In the middle, you could re- like renounce any connection with Louis Farrakhan as a person, and minimally, you could completely disavow the specific hateful statements that are made. I feel like nobody's even done that. And if you can't get as far as that, then we're in very, very troubling territory. So the the level of disavowal we've seen is Tamika Mallory saying things like, I don't completely agree with things that he has said about Jews and, and LGBT people which is the weakest of weak tea. And the Women's March statement was something along the lines of the remarks of Louis Farrakhan are not aligned with Women's March unity principles, which is the most mealy mouth bureaucraties for that guy is a bigot that I have ever heard. Um, they have, and the defensiveness has been really troubling. Um, and so I feel like while it might, while I might feel poorly positioned to grapple with the question of, is it okay for women's march leaders to maintain a relationship with the organization, the Nation of Islam? We don't have to touch that question in order to be really troubled by what's happening here. Word. <laughs> <That's all. laughs> I mean, I I have read several people um, do a similar pulling apart of we have to pull Farrakhan in some ways out of our understanding of the social role of nation of Islam. And I, it seems like for a lot of people, their defense of Farrakhan is a defense of nation of Islam. And if we can pull those two apart, then we can let nation of Islam do the good that it does we can also still criticize that there's like some fucked up shit, like there's some homophobia there, there's some misogyny there, there's some anti-Semitism, but we can folk, let's, let's talk about Farrakhan. And it seems like Tamika Mallory won't let those, won't, won't pull those apart in, in her, in her um, understanding of this person. I don't know. Tamar, what, what yeah. do you think there? I mean, I totally agree with everything that has been said. I have to say the thing that is kind of weirdest to me about this conversation is that it has focused very little on the fact that Farrakhan, in addition to being anti-Semite and um, homophobic, is like a total misogynist and believes and is very vocal about views of women that are just like extremely, extremely 
antithetical to what the Women's March stands for. Not because I don't think the anti-Semitism is important. I do think it's important. But I think that Jews, like all people, but especially Jews, have a real my myopathy. Myopia. Myopic? <laughs> myopia. Thank you. Um, Jews have a real myopia about, like, our problems should be everybody's problems and people who don't like us should be, like, off limits to everyone else. And, like, you know... In a way, everyone feels that way. But I think that Jews feel like if somebody's anti-Semitic, everyone should obviously see that that's not okay. And, like, that's just not how the world works. Like, would that it were so, but it isn't. And, frankly, like, people of color in this country have lived through literally centuries of the country very intentionally trying to take their rights away and treat them poorly and even though there have been some Jews who have, like, tried to stand up and help them, it's not been, like, the Jewish people have been running to be allies to people of color as a as a overlying fact. And in fact, like, in many cases, it seemed like quite the opposite was true. So, like, even though I agree that I think this anti-Semitism is, like, reprehensible and, like, I it's horrifying to me that Farrakhan is, like, anybody's leader, let alone the leader of a women's march who's supposed to be really, really care about intersectionalism. Like, I just don't think that the way to get through to this person is to be like, can't you see that what he's saying is super anti-Semitic? Like, no, she can't. <laughs> if she could, then she probably wouldn't have been there. But, like, I do think you could say to that person, like, hey, this is super misogynist and your whole thing is to be there for women in this country. So, like, let's talk about that. And, like, as Jews, I think we have a responsibility to educate people about anti-Semitism. But we also need to recognize that, like, the image of Jews in this country, fairly or not, and I actually don't even think it's unfair, is as an upper middle class people. And, like, so... They, we don't look like a group that if you are a person of color living in the inner city where, say, Nation of Islam is like one of the few organizations that's doing any outreach to you that needs any help. And so, you know, they're they're punching up. OK, no, we're no, sorry. Down. I don't care about this. That is not OK. Look, I, first of all, if you're in a room where somebody says Jews are Satan and you can't identify that as anti-Semitism, that's not my fault. It's yours. Second of all, OK, okay. Th this isn't like some kind of dog whistle. This is a this is like pretty direct. Um, right. Second of all, this notion. I don't I, I, I it, it's direct, but it's direct to us. We care about this. Like, I want her to care about anti-Semitism, but like. I, I do not think that she actually does. And I don't think that the way to make her care about anti-Semitism is to be like, oh my God, can't you see you're friends with an anti-Semite? Like, yeah, and she doesn't care. But she does care about misogyny. And so like having a conversation with her about anti-Semitism and not misogyny is not the way to change her mind. Okay, so you're making a tactical like, argument, right? Yeah. What you said before was like, we know this is anti-Semitism. She probably doesn't. But I, look, I think... No, no, no. I don't think she doesn't know it's anti-Semitism. I think she doesn't care. Okay, so... I, 
I think she's been pretending that she cares, but has been but has been saying that she cares a lot more about being about the the grievous offense of being called an anti-Semite, and also uh, and has made a lot of mealy-mouthed hate is bad in all its forms. But I think this this like question of Jews are upper middle class and not persecuted, and does that mean that? Um, and not persecuted in America in this moment, does that mean that other people are should not be expected to care about anti-Semitism when it comes out guns blazing? I, I understand that this is my, like, parochial concern, but Tamika Mallory literally joined the Women's March out of an anti-intersectionality problem, right? Okay, so what happened was... There were some white women who created a thing on Facebook that they were calling the Million Women March out of historical ignorance of the fact that there was something called the, women, the Million Women March, and it was a march of black women about self-reliance among black women. It actually took place in Philadelphia, and it was like a big deal, and then this group of white women started getting major flack for their ignorance about this, and literally what they did to solve this problem was reach out to Tamika Mallory and Carmen Perez and Linda Sarsour to diversify the leadership committee and have a more intersectionally sensitive uh, leadership committee, and... Well, also, I feel like we should mention that there was also a thing called the Million Man March, which was of black men in Washington, D.C., and it was led by Louis Farrakhan. <laughs> also true. But, but my, my point is that, there, that like, Tamika Mallory's involvement in, in this movement is in theory about intersectional representation. That is the reason she is there. So what this, the, what this raises for me is, do Jews get to be a minority in the eyes of those who advocates for the rights and liberation of other minorities. Because so much of this feels like it's about whose fear and suffering and history matters versus who has to shelve their concerns in the service of realer persecutions. And I understand that I am, on the whole, a very privileged person, right? I don't deny it. But having white privilege for 97% of the time, which is true of me as a New York area Ashkenazi Jew and obviously is not true of all Jews, but having white privilege 97% of the time does not disqualify the truth or the importance of that other 3%. And that other 3% is happening right now. And if you are going to make your entire ethos about injustice for anyone is injustice for everyone, then you can't say we're a totally intersectional movement, but we don't care about anti-Semitism. That's BS. And it is totally within my right to call you out on it. And whether or not that's tactically wise, I mean, I don't think being a Twitter troll is tactically wise and plenty of people are doing that. I'm, I'm not, I have done nothing to like attack Tamika Mallory personally, but I think that there's a question about, in the same way there's a question about Louis Farrakhan versus the organization and entity of Nation of Islam, there's a question about, as somebody who like attended the first women's march and found it a tremendously moving experience, how should I feel about this? And what should I demand of this of this entity? I don't know if it's a movement or an event or an organization. What do I demand of it before I go back? And do I go back? And does it matter? Right? And should I feel abandoned by this? And should I feel abandoned by this major avatar of the left? Because um, I don't I don't really think this is about Tamika Mallory, who has 
clearly so little acquaintance with this that she actually explained in an interview with The Atlantic that part of her personal education was that she wasn't supposed to make comments about how Jews are good at money and never realized that that was anti-Semitism. Like, clearly she is not the individual to look to for leadership on this issue. But where does that leave me as somebody who wants to be a part of this moment? Because we're in a moment where anti-Semitism is rising hard on the alt-right, but I'm feeling pretty, pretty darn abandoned by the left. And all of these apologetics and all of this focusing on what's the right strategy here as opposed to what's just right is leaving me feeling without a home in this world. Mm-hmm. In this, in this, I don't mean in this world in the cosmic sense. Without a home in, in this political spectrum world. I, I just want to clarify, like, I'm not defending Tamika Mallory. Like, I think what she did was wrong. And I think, obviously, there's, like, no defending Farrakhan. I wouldn't spend a breath on that. But, like, I think this is just, this is a problem of education. Like, these are people who, like, genuinely do not see that this is a problem. And there are reasons behind why they see that that, they don't see that it's a problem. And, like, we don't like that they don't see that. But that's not... I'm not sure how relevant that is until we could get them to see that it's a problem. Like, and, and I think that like, it happens that the way that the blowback worked, like now Tamika Mallory is like more convinced than ever that anti-Semitism is like probably a good thing because we can't, and that like, whatever, I don't think that's our fault. Like, I, I just think that like what happened didn't like make her feel good about Jewish people. Um, and that, that sucks because I, I would like her to care about this, but I don't think she is now going to. But I think um, that Zahav is asking a question after that, which is, and, right. and now what? Like, now what does the Jewish American do when you want to be active on the political left when Women's March, whatever it is, to me, it's like a Twitter handle, um, it definitely holds some power and some sway. What do we do? I actually think, like, that it doesn't that much. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it is bad. I, I think everything that went down was bad, and I am upset about it. But I also think that, like, the Women's March was this, like, one mo- shining moment where, like, a lot of people had a really powerful experience, and the people who organized it, like had actually a really difficult experience organizing it like it really seemed like it might be a serious bad situation up until like the moment it happened like lots of people were excited about it but almost as many people were like oh my god this is not gonna go well and um you know it did go well but like it there the second year marches were actually like not women's march marches like the the home march was in want to say Reno and like sister marches elsewhere were like other organizations essentially they were like if you want to come to the march you have to come to Nevada which is like the whole thing about the original was that they were everywhere and they were like hundreds of thousands if not millions of people all over the world and like I think ultimately like these organizers have like totally lost hold of their brand which is probably good because I don't think they're very good at doing the thing that they're trying to do um, you know, they were good at doing like one thing, which they did. And now like the time passed and they have, they're not doing good stuff anymore. And like, 
I basically think that's okay because there are other organizations that are doing more interesting and active things and are responding um, to this kind of thing in a way that is responsible as opposed to like the way the Women's March responded to this issue, which was just like, who are you even? Um, So, I mean, I understand where you're coming from as a Hava, but I basically feel like whatever. (laughs) These people were not like, they were not going to be the people who saved us anyways. Like they planned a good event and I think we wanted them to be more than they were. And they have just like proven, and this isn't the only situation in which they've done this. Um, They've proven that like, this is actually not their strong point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like these people should not be the spokeswomen for like progressive women because their values are like not exactly aligned with, the values that maybe a lot of progressive women want moving forward. Um, And so like, you know, ultimately like progressive women are running for office in higher numbers than they ever have before. And if like they win, then we're going to have more people with progressive values, many of whom are women in office, like putting together progressive policies, hopefully like that's how this stuff happens. And like a powerful march is an important thing. I feel like now I just, like, go to marches every freaking weekend, which is, like, both nice and tiring. Um, But, like, you know, you march usually because something bad happened. And, like, if you want something good to happen, you need to have, like, a person in a position of power who can fix things. And, like, the women who were organizing the Women's March weren't running for office. And, like, obviously now they shouldn't because they shouldn't be elected. But, like, there are a lot of women doing that. And I think if things are going to change, they're not going to change because of Tamiko Mallory. They're going to change because of, like, people getting in office. So I also just want to – sorry, go ahead. So it's interesting. As somebody who's really not plugged into the world of activism, um, like, I'm, like, deeply in – uh, change from the inside institutionalist public policy professional. Um, so as somebody who's really not plugged into the world of activism, I don't think I would have like, no, I didn't know the name Tamika Mallory when I marched in the first women's march the weekend of, of the 2016, 20, uh, 2017 inauguration. Um, I marched in the New York one. I was not in D.C. But I, I didn't know her name. And my experience had truly nothing to do with whoever was speaking at the end, right? My experience was very much about what I was seeing with the other people there. And the things that made me cry were, like, the teenagers showing up for this and saying, this is what democracy looks like. It was the 55-year-old white guy holding the sign that says, this is what a feminist looks like. Those are the things that made my experience. It truly had nothing. I I give the organizers tremendous due credit for for a real logistical feat, and that's it. Um, But two things. One, I'm not sure I agree that this has not been educational either for her or for other people who might have defended her. I think that there has been a lot of really good writing by people who sit at the intersection of these communities, by Jews of color, exploring these issues. I think that people, there are a lot of people, close bystanders that have listened and experienced these conversations helpfully. And so I think it actually has been useful. Um, But I think this is also not just about this group of people, this individual or this group of people. There's also a thread in this conversation about like this lays bare a certain type, a certain type of anti-Semitism that's happening 
in progressive America and that this lays bare the fact that there's a lot of anti-Semitism in America that's sort of um, that's sort of on the line. Does it exist as opposition to Israeli policy or is it true anti-Semitism and, and where do those things meet and where are they separate? Where is anti-Zionism the same thing as anti-Semitism and where is it actually quite different? And this is one of those things that there's no ambiguity, right? This is not about Zionism. This is about somebody who thinks Jews are Satan. And the fact that anybody is willing to defend that, the fact that anybody hesitates to condemn that, even just as a statement on its own, independent of, of the messenger, that this has been an important moment in revealing that kind of anti-Semitism. And I think there really is this question of like, I, I, did Jews count? Did Jews count as a minority? Is this an identity that matters? Um, does, does this history matter? And I think that that's a real conversation that's happening in a way that really has less to do with Tamika Mallory than, than it might. In, in, I'm sure we'll share this in the show notes, but in thinking about the question that you're asking about a moment of anti-Semitism and what to me is not anti-Semitism on the left, but the left's reticence to call out anti-Semitism when they hear it. Um, the piece, Tamar, that you shared from The Atlantic by John Paul Pagano, I found particularly helpful in understanding what's going on in this particular moment on the left where we understand racism as um, prejudice plus power and how that feeds into our hesitance to call out anti-Semitism because we view American Jews as white and powerful, and therefore we think that they can't be, that, that there can't be this violence done to us. I, yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. I basically feel like even though the, the anti-Semitism that's happening now is real, and it's rising. I mean, like there, I'm not really somebody who runs to the ADL's website very often, but the statistics about like the number of anti-Semitic incidents are quite disturbing. Um, but I also like, I look at those and I think like, that doesn't measure, like the anti-Semitic things that happen are very public to an, and can be recorded. So like a swastika being spray painted on some place like counts as an anti-Semitic thing and somebody can count it and like the ADL can add it to their database or whatever. But like there's all kinds of racist things that happen in our government that are built into the systems and policies that like don't get counted by a, by the ADL or anything, you know, like people of color being um, put in the in prisons more frequently than they should. The school to prison pipeline, like whatever, there's a million things. Right. I'm not an expert in these, but they don't like and. And I think as Jews, we look at this at instance of anti-Semitism and we get freaked out. And I think that like part of the reason that people of color are not like that moved by that and by our fear is because like it's just built into this country that they have a much higher level of fear than we are feeling right now. Um, and And it's a fear that is based on like actual slavery and lynchings and a like you know political 
uh, and policies designed to keep power and money away from them. Um, and they like don't see people showing up to talk that to, to say like, that's terrible. And so like when we see a swastika and get really upset, which like I have experienced that of like seeing somebody spray paint a swastika two blocks in my house and feeling really upset. But like, you know, when someone gets arrested on my block, that doesn't count in the same way to me. And like that, that means that we're just in a different place as like cultures of like caring about each other. Um, And I think like that, that's not good, but I also think like that is the reality and that's what's playing out here is that like people of color have been essentially abandoned by like, as, as people to care about by, by our society in a big way. And um, Jews haven't. And, you know, we might be feeling like, hey, people aren't caring as much about this issue right now um, as I want them to. But that's not the same as like, one in three member male members of our community are in prison. Like, those are different. Yes, they are. Um, and they don't have to be the same for all of this to be true, right? So, like... Agreed. I, and I don't think you're arguing that, but I, th- I think that, the, like, what is being asked of the other here is so minimal, right? The notion that you should not feel comfortable when someone says, hey, thanks for coming, and by the way, Jews are Satan, is a pretty minimal ask. And what is being asked of... Like, what is being asked of allies to the black community now is absolutely vital. It is also more historically complex, right? Understanding the difference between, like, burning a cross on somebody's lawn versus structures of institutional racism, what happens with sort of entrenched histories of policy, what is happening today in implicit bias and policing, right? Those things are absolutely vital and also complicated, this is not complicated. Well, but it, I mean, yes, I don't think that Tamika Mallory incident is complicated, but I do think that like the larger issue of like, we're, you're, you're feeling really alienated by the left is, is complicated. Like, I think that it is a thing where it's like, the left is now really invigorated by talking about things like institutional racism and isn't about anti-Semitism because people are starting to wake up to the fact that like we have just basically told the black community to F off for literally hundreds of years and people see that Jews are actually quite successful for the most part in this country. And so it seems like it makes more, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying this is, I think how it is breaking down. And I think that like ultimately to change this, what we need to do is a little bit less, hand-wringing and being like, oh my God, nobody cares about my problems, even if that is true, and a little bit more like throat clearing and educating. And I like, we, I, I feel like so much of my community feels about this, like, well, if you don't know why this isn't okay, then I can't explain it to you. And it's like, I mean... If that's how you feel, that's fine, but you you haven't explained it to someone who doesn't know now. So, you know, it, 
If you don't, if that doesn't matter to you, that's fine. But there are people who genuinely don't know. And um, just yesterday when we were recording this, there was like a big dust up because a city council person in Washington, D.C. made a comment blaming bad weather on a global Jewish conspiracy. And it was just like, what it was so wild um and upsetting because he was also like a progressive person who had worked with a bunch of like progressive organizations on getting policies passed that were really important and people were really upset about it and today he put out a really substantial and i thought moving apology where he was basically like yeah I was told a bunch of this stuff and I didn't know it wasn't true and I didn't know it was anti-Semitic and today a bunch of people told me and I feel terrible about it and I have to educate myself about this because I just didn't know. And like, that is good. That is progress. But I think we just don't... I know a lot about anti-Semitism and I feel quite equipped to explain it to people, but like lots of people actually don't and I think that like if you went to a Jewish summer camp which I didn't but many of my friends did I think you have the sense of like everybody knows about this stuff in a way that is just like not exactly true um and especially some of the like bigger elders of Zion stuff like I was in a college class where a college professor was like the elders of Zion are like an important Jewish group and I was like I like lost it but it was like he did not know like I was educating him then and like we people just don't know and like that sucks but like that is also like means that we have to do the educating and I just don't think that the way that often the communities that at least I see react to these it doesn't involve education it just involves like freaking the f out in a way that is like not helping anyone i do want to reiterate though that i think that some of the responsive writing on this has actually been very good very helpful very educational um and i i do think that some gains have been made here but yeah i think that like for someone to put themselves forward, not just as a leader of an intersectional movement, but actually as the personal answer to an intersectionality problem and have such a big intersectionality fail, maybe it's inevitable. Maybe there's an ignorance that needs to be addressed, but also there is a responsibility on the part of that person to say, now that I've been educated, it occurs to me that this was an intersectionality fail and maybe I should like apologize and say something of substance. And honestly, this whole thing has really brought up for me the difference between what I think of as good intersectionality and stupid intersectionality. Um, So do tell one thing that I sometimes hear as sort of a, a something that seems to be some people's off the cuff definition of, of intersectionality is basically We have to agree on everything before we can agree on anything. I would say one exemplar of stupid intersectionality is Linda Sarsour saying that you can't be a feminist if you're also a Zionist, right? That that would be, I understand, a longer conversation, but it is not true that we must agree on everything before we can agree on anything. However, good intersectionality is, broadly speaking, we have a common goal. And as we unite around it to try and achieve that goal, we can bring our whole selves to that goal and be valued for what that brings to the table. 
And in this moment when Jewish employees of the Women's March organization are like resigning in droves, what has been made clear is you are not allowed to bring your whole self to this table. And that is a failure, not just of knowledge, but of a value that you yourself claim to embody and espouse. I think that matters. And I think the reason people fall short of realizing that it matters is that they don't think that Jewish is a real identity that matters. Hmm. And that is where this is falling short. I feel like I've taken up enough airtime here to speak for myself and Mimi, who's who's hardly had a chance to get a word in edgewise. I apologize. No, nope. I am ready to move on. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Perfect. All right. Well, on that on that note, uh, here we go. Uh, should we do endorsements? Sure. All right, Mimi, no, you get, didn't talk that much. Guys, I, I'm, I'm so not even sure. Um, okay, all right, here's my endorsement. Um, Passover sneaks up every year. This year, I fortunately, in the Boston area, there are a few groups doing different Passover prep learning um, yeah, just different different ways to to get yourself ready for Passover. So I am not going to do this shiur, this lesson, any justice. But I want to point your attention to the Torah. Um, <laughs> Good endorsement. <laughs> actually, so, the Torah. I think you meant Torah. <laughs> um, for. This this blew my mind. Okay. Joseph goes down to Egypt. He brings all of his family. There's a famine in the land. He has brought all of his family and their families. People are starving and come to him to say, what should we do? He, he figures out this system of, like, how they're going to sell their... Um, I'm going to get this wrong, but they're going to sell their livestock, then they're going to sell their crops. Meanwhile, his family has all of the food that they need, and they're able to keep their animals, their herds, um, grazing on all of this land. And so what, what I'm, I'm not sorry, I'm not doing this justice, but the amazing thing that I got to learn in preparation for Passover is about what happened to Joseph and Jacob, his father, and their family before the Israelites became slaves. And the system of government that was set up, in part through Joseph's leadership, that created, that basically created the Jews and the Israelites as a people separate and in some ways set above the Egyptians. Um, and it really, like, it blew my understanding of the slavery in the land of Egypt because I got to wind it back a little bit um, and has me just, like, rethinking the Passover narrative, even thinking about um, systems of government and how we privilege certain people, what we do when people come to us asking for help. Um, it, I, I will find this source sheet and get permission to share it because... It was 
really, really good. Awesome. That does sound good. Very cool. Toira for the win. <laughs> Mimi gives the Toira two thumbs up. <laughs> all right, Zahava, what about you? Um, okay, so first of all, I do want to say, and I know Mimi mentioned one of these already, but in terms of uh, preparing for our, our um, Women's March segment, I want to call out both of the pieces in The Atlantic that we read, one by Adam Serwer and one by John Paul Pagano. I think the two of them together were tremendously helpful to me, um, and so I want to flag that specifically. Um, yeah. So speaking of institutional racism... This was actually my intended endorsement. Okay, so um, the historian Arnold Hirsch died this week. Um, And I'm going to make the cavalier assumption based on his name that he was Jewish. I don't actually know. Um, And 25 years ago, uh, he published a book called Making the Second Ghetto. May actually be 35 years ago now called Making the Second Ghetto, um, which is about the city of Chicago specifically, but basically a case study in how American cities became segregated. Um, Everything from the policies around the placement of public housing to highway construction to the original race riots, which were riots by quote unquote white ethnics, um, like, you know, members of white immigrant communities against uh, new black residents in their communities. Um, It is very dense. It is a masterwork of the genre and really kicked off the study of institutional racism that that has really um, gained a lot more traction in the last several years. Um, And the reason I'm bringing it up now is uh, both because um, Hirsch just died this week, the week we're recording, but also um, in the spirit of the black and Jewish community is not fully understanding each other's histories of oppression. Um, On the other side of our prior conversation, I have been in many a conversation in which a Jewish person who was not, uh, who is not very steeped in this part of American history would say something like, my grandparents came here with nothing after the Holocaust. And in two generations, we've done so well. And slavery ended 200 years ago. And, you know, essentially what are black people still complaining about? And, uh, Mimi is quite appropriately making a face at that argument, but I think that there are a lot of people in the Jewish community who genuinely don't know this history um, and don't know the history of how the American government was actively segregating America all the way through the 20th century and beyond. So Making the Second Ghetto by Arnold Hirsch is a real like, foundational text in this, in this study. There's also a more recent book that came out last year by Richard Rothstein, again, cavalierly assuming by his name that he's Jewish, um, called The Color of Law, which is specifically about government policy and the way in which governments, American governments, federal, state, local, segregated America. Um, I am in the process of reading that one, but based on what I've read so far, I can endorse. I just think these are really useful foundational texts. And I know a lot of generally very educated Jews who are not aware of this history, and it can only enrich our conversations uh, for people to be better steeped in it. Yeah. Uh, I have lighter endorsements than you guys. Awesome. So awesome. that's good that I'm going last. <laughs> um my first endorsement is for a documentary, which I watched uh, because it was in, an independent lens film, which I think means that you can watch it um, online on the PBS website. 
Um, it's called Supergirl, and it is about um, an Orthodox Jewish preteen living in Paramus, New Jersey, who also is the world champion powerlifter um, for her weight class. And it is about her life leading up to and then following her bat mitzvah. And it is just like super interesting. And um, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed it. I'm not sure like that it necessarily has a lot profound to say about either orthodoxy or powerlifting, but if you have done either of those, <laughs> you will probably enjoy it. I happen to have done both, so I was super down. Um, yeah, so I really loved that. And the other thing that I want to endorse is like a very tactless, a very uh, useful logistical endorsement because you're coming up to Passover and perhaps you'll be spending quite a bit of time cooking. Um, if that is what will be happening, I highly recommend the recipe app Paprika. Um, it does cost money. So I think the app costs like $4, but you can also buy like a $30 version that also works on your computer. And it is like such a great way of organizing your recipes. I use it for like essentially all of my recipes now. Um, but it's especially great because you can keep your recipe up on your phone and it, it will not, the screen will not shut off at any point <laughs> while you are cooking. If you have the app open, that is which so is like important, incredibly valuable. <laughs> I've learned like the number of times that I have like gotten disgusting food on my screen because my recipe had um, gone away and I had to like reopen it. I've learned to, to count. I've learned to open my phone with my nose because my <laughs> hands are dirty. So I have to type in my code with my oh, nose. <laughs> That's amazing. You need this app. <laughs> um, there's like many other wonderful features. Like it has like internal timers. So if it says in the recipe, like do such and such for like 15 minutes, you just tap 15 minutes and it sets a timer, which is amazing. Um, and you can like build your shopping list from it, whatever, all this stuff. But like, I, it is amazing. I love it. I use it for everything now and I'm super excited to start using it for Passover. So, um, if you need to organize your recipes for Passover, I already put in the lemon almond cookie recipe that Zahava has shared on the show in the Woo! past. <laughs> so um, I'm ready to go. Uh, and yeah, I hope that you will all get that. If, if you need it, you should get it. And it's going to make your Passover cooking that much easier. All right, we made it. <laughs> um, I feel like we all need to go have a drink. So... Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have a minute, it would be awesome if you could leave us a review at Apple Podcasts um, and let us know what you would like us to talk about in a future podcast. If you like really heavier episodes or if you would like us to talk about like what's so awesome about Lagba Omer in our next episode, <laughs> let us know. Um, Please know. You can leave. <laughs> I know I really have very little to say about Lagba Omer, but if the people demand it, you can leave a comment um, on a post or on our Facebook page. You should search for Jewish Public Media to find us on Facebook. Um, or you could leave a comment on our website. You should choose Talking and Shill from the list of podcasts if you're looking for us on the jpmedia.co website. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co. A great thing to do before Passover. You want to make some donations. 
hit us up. Um, and this is really a great way to show support for our show and make sure that we're able to bring you new episodes. Thank you so much. See you next month. Bye, Mimi. Bye. Happy Passover. Happy Passover. Bye, Zahava. Bye, guys. Chag Kasher Yes. Chag Kasher And we will talk to you all soon.